Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schindler, and today I'm fortunate enough to be joined by Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm, I Before we got on here, I, I told Mark, like, I just think saying good would be disingenuous, so I'm just going to go with hanging in. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with that. There's a this is fair warning. There are a couple dogs in my apartment complex that are just going off for whatever reason today, so if you hear any barking in the background, I apologize. So today, uh, we're going to talk about the Pacers offense and kind of where it can go from here. I'm cooped up in my apartment, uh, so I'm, of course, crunching numbers, watching film, reminiscing of the old days, projecting what the future could be. Looking at this team, I think there have been a lot of really great things to come out of this season, but also there are a lot of question marks. And I think the biggest one for me uh, at the moment is where the offense is going, because, you know, after kind of sifting through some stuff, uh, right now, the Pacers offense is ranked 18th by offensive rating. Obviously, that's below average. It's not great. And the Pacers haven't had an offense that is ranked above 13th since the 2011-12 season and the 03-04 season before then. And obviously, those were really good seasons in Pacers history, especially 03-04. And just going back and looking, you know, until we have a solid offense, or not even just a solid offense, like a, a championship or contending level offense, it seems like we're really going to struggle to to make it uh, any farther than we have in the playoffs already. Right. I mean, I think the one thing that I can hold my hat on, if I want to give somebody a glimmer of hope on that front, I checked the synergy numbers before I came on here, and this is something I've kind of been monitoring all year. And if you look at just their points per possession in the half court, they're actually at 10th. So, and their ISOs have jumped from where they ranked 27th a year ago. They're clear up to 7th now. And that's mm-hmm. mostly just like a, a difference in having better weapons. Because, yeah. you know, last year when they were in the playoffs, if Boston was switching, if they were chasing over on a stagger and then jumping out, like let's say Bogdanovich has to go one-on-one, they didn't have anybody that could really create their own shot or create separation. And I think now if you headed into a playoff series, I mean, some of their isolation efficiency was coming from Jeremy Lamb, who they obviously don't have, but... They, they've gotten good production on isolations out of Brogdon. I think if Victor's a little bit more like Victor, you're going to get some productivity there where they can actually still create shots. I mean, that's the most important thing to me in the playoffs is that I think it becomes all the more important that you have people that are going to be able to generate that type of offense that isn't so dependent on getting open spot-up attempts that may not be there for spot-up shooters. So that's one thing I would look at. But yeah, I mean, overall... I think people are going to want to look at, you know, the threes, the free throw attempts, and how there hasn't been a lot of development on either one of those fronts this year. So, yeah, I agree. And it, see, I, I try not even to worry about that too much because I, I was talking right. with uh, with Tom the other week about how what makes India a little bit special is that we're, we bring in guys who really fit our system and we thrive off having guys who can, who can create out of the mid range effectively. I mean, Malcolm and uh, TJ being some of the, the best in the league at that, especially TJ. But at the same time, we're really just fighting numbers with that. I think some people don't necessarily look at the, uh, the importance of how that stacks up over an entire game. Like Houston shooting 44 threes this year. We don't want to shoot that many, obviously. Uh, but I mean, we're shooting 27, which is last in the league. And I think the biggest thing for me, though, is just looking at our offensive sets. Uh, I don't know if you get the same feeling, but for me, I feel like there's just a very minimal amount of off ball movement or not minimal, but it's lacking. You know, you feel like there's a two man or three man action going on. And then the other guys are just relegated to spot up duty. And I understand that's important for space in the floor, but I feel like that's something that could really be improved upon. Right. I mean, I think some of it stems from looking at, okay, if opponents are going to be scheming for what the Pacers do, 
in a playoff series, how much of what the Pacers is doing is sustainable? Kind of what you said before. So if we look at like Sabonis, and I wrote this, I don't know, a week or two weeks ago, people are going to want to take away his left hand and his ability Mm -hmm. to turn over his right shoulder. Like that's a given. And he's drawing more and more attention. I mean, even you looked at Milwaukee, he'd be drawing two or three defenders, which that's part of their system. They really want to take away the rim. They're the best in the league at that. But at the same time, like, you're going to have to have a way to continue. I don't have a problem with post-ups. I'm not the anti-post-up oh, crowd. I mean, if you look at his numbers, he's getting .914 points per possession on a post-up. That isn't great. But his passes out of the post are getting 1.317, which some of that dip on his own efficiency is the attention he's drawing. So that number on the passes is better than what the Pacers get on spot-up looks. That's better than what they get off screens. Like, that, that's a good mode of offense, but you have to find a way to make that consistency available. I, they don't run a lot of split cuts what you're saying like most of the time they're just dependent on if somebody comes and doubles Sabonis the other four people stand on the weak side and they wait to get a clean shot which is fine unless unless teams are going to start zoning up some of those spots and if they play the angles well which Milwaukee did then you need to get some more movement out of that to get shooters open you it, it can't just be the ISO standing still. I mean, I'd like to see him even experiment a little bit. I think they call it like a grenade handoff where you'd be able to get it into Sabonis in the post. He can dribble out for a dribble handoff. And then like what you're saying, you can run the two guard off a stagger on the weak side or even have the point guard flip around and run off those screens. And you're getting more of that swirling action around him. I mean, really take advantage of what Sabonis brings to the table as a passer in a more consistent fashion. I mean, if you compare last year to this year, I think too, um, Sabonis on the short roll, his numbers weren't great in the playoffs last year, but a lot of times he'd be out on the floor with like Thaddeus Young and Corey Joseph. If they're on the weak side, you're right. You're not getting, you're not getting spacing there. And even if they're setting a dummy screen, Boston isn't going to care that Thad and Corey Joseph are setting a dummy screen. Oh yeah, they totally laid off Thad last year. Oh yeah. So, you know, if, if that's Doug McDermott and Justin Holiday out there with the normal bench unit, you're at least, you're getting spacing there. Kind of like what you saw in the end of the game against Denver. They were totally lo- loading to Sabonis off the pick and roll, and then they were able to get open shots out of that. So, you know, even McDermott, what I just said there, there's going to be differences of how opponents are going to guard him. They're going to chase him over. They're going to switch, and they're going to jump to his right hand when he comes off his shot. So then what are you doing? Like, you, you don't see a lot of the pacers of, are they going to play deep into the shot clock where they're getting extra wrinkles to be able to get those guys open for their usual shots in a different way, whether that means, you know, setting a back screen for a veer for McDermott to still be able to get open or, you know, whatever have you. But there are little small things. I would say another one is, you know, last year Boston pre-rotated to Miles' popping spot a lot. And now Miles is a little bit more comfortable putting the ball on the floor. While last year, that just wouldn't have been a shot. He would have been passing out of it or not even getting the ball. So there's some small things there, but I agree with you that getting overall movement around some of the stuff they do would, would give them an extra level that you don't really see from them on a game-to-game basis at least not yet yeah definitely and speaking on domas for a second as well uh, it seems kind of novel to bring up the concept but uh, do you think legitimately within like the next year or two this is one thing that i've i've talked about a lot uh him just taking more threes and not even like a ton like that's not where he gets his bread and butter i don't expect him to become like uh like miles like he's not a stretch guy like that's not what he that's not his game but at the same time, you look at, especially on DHOs up at the top of the key between him and Brogdon, they start sticking later on in the game as they really push the drives from, from Brogdon to come to the top. And then Domas, oftentimes you see him, he kind of looks to his right, looks to his left, and then he's just stuck out there. No man's land. He, he goes up to maybe take a three and he's like, I don't really want to do this. And he ends up, uh, it's just it, kind of a broken play that doesn't really have a great ending with it. Um, 
And I feel like if he were able to kind of develop more of a, and I think we saw it a little bit, he was taking more down the stretch. He hardly took any threes uh, to start the year, but he's been consistently taking at least one a game, uh, at least since the new year started. Uh, and I, I just feel like if he was able to have his defender not sitting at the free throw line, that opens up so much more across the middle for those uh, any any off-ball cuts that happen. And with how good of a passer he is, it's not even the three-point shooting. I think the threat of him as a potential guy who maybe hits like 31 or 32% and you have to guard him, uh, I think that just opens the floor up so much. Right. I mean, what you say, yeah, being a, a non-shooter is definitely worse than being a bad shooter. I mean, even if you look at, you know, Malcolm Brogdon, he's shot pretty terribly overall from three by comparison yeah. to last year. But on a pull-up three, you know, I am i don't need him to shoot a lot of pull-up threes, but I need him to shoot some. Because if he isn't going to shoot them, then teams are going to lay off of him and Victor's going to be seeing more attention at the nail when he has the ball. So like you say with Sabonis, I don't need him taking a lot of threes. But when he is open or he has popped and he has the ball... You know, I don't need him to automatically pass out of that either, because if you don't shoot it, then it becomes easy just to sag off of him or, you know, whatever that is. I, I even more than that, I just really want them to run more actions that involve him and Miles at the same time. I mean, you saw that in the end of game scenario where they ran that role replace finally at long last. The clouds broke oh, open and the sun shined through. And you could just see I, how excited Miles was, too. That was amazing. I mean, it's, it, I've been harping on that for like two years and I, I'm pretty sure you could probably count. I don't know how many hands you would need to count how many times they've actually run that. And if they do, it's putting both of them equal opposite direction on cuts, putting tension on the tagger. And it's putting Miles in position where he's going to be the person first back on defense, even if he misses that shot or doesn't get that shot. And you just, those types of things are why they don't, you know, run more pick and roll on the side with like Brogdon and Sabonis in a two man where you could throw the ball right behind that into a step-up screen with Victor and Miles, like where you're getting all of them involved at the same time where you just have a lot more options. I'd like to see that. I mean, I think that they've made strides individually. I think Turner and Sabonis have both gotten better at being a little bit more like the other person, if that makes sense, as far Mm -hmm. as, you know, Miles going in and ducking against a switch or Sabonis being stronger this year at shooting from mid-range. But I, I think there's a little bit more space where they could push that to finally know definitively how well does this work? Yeah, definitely. And uh, speaking on Miles as well, you, you talked about the, the one play recently. How do you think we get him more involved? How, how does how does he become more involved in the offense? Because it, it's so, so often this year, he's just a spot up guy. And you can tell his frustration, like like we talked about with like the last like probably 10 games, he was finally starting to see a little bit more. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I don't know. I feel like there's just got to be more to get him involved. Right. So uh, right there, I mean, role replaces, uh, it would be my number one. I would run that multiple times every game. It wouldn't be a one every 10 game sighting of let's run a role replace action with both of them involved. I'd also look, they run some horn sets. Obviously, they set up an A alignment. You'll see that. And sometimes it's like a lift where they give the ball to Sabonis out of horns for a, a dribble handoff. But I'd also like to see him do a little bit more where... Uh, both of them are in horns action and you're just dribbling off and either getting a flare screen out of it for Miles to get an open shot, again, that's above the break, more in his comfort zone, or you just run regular whichever side they dribble off of, then one person rolls and one person pops. I've actually seen one sighting where they ran horns and they didn't run. They looked like they are going to run pick and roll with Sabonis and then he just ducked in an exit and got a quick, easy mm-hmm 
um, shot under the rim, like that that type of stuff. I think they could probably experiment a little bit more with, like you say, most of the time it's using Miles as a spacer and kind of letting Sabonis do his thing. Which I mean, you know, I think that makes sense because Sabonis is as good as he is in the screen in the pick and roll and making plays with the ball in his hands, maybe more so than Miles. But also, just I think it's going to matter that when you get into a playoff scenario that it isn't quite as predictable about which role each of them has. So being able to mix it up, I think, would be a little bit more of a secret sauce so that defenders are caught a little bit more off balance, even when they're just doing like a a double drag, which, you know, our double drag to double ball screen where, you know, which one of them is the popper, which one of them is the roller, where it's just a little bit more mystery involved with it, if that makes sense. No, that definitely makes sense. Uh, because that's something that I've thought about a ton this year, not even necessarily like to, to that level, but just more on the Sabonis Brogdon pick and roll has been one of the most effective plays in basketball this year. But at the same time, it happens every single time. It's at least it seems like watching it. Uh, it's, it happens every single time left side of the key uh, and it results in a basket more often than not. But then you think about it and it's, we saw it a little bit in Boston because they defended us so well. When it comes to a playoff series, it's going to be so hard to keep using the same repetitive motion. Like, it's a lot easier to, to, to guard something when you see it a lot more. So, no, I totally agree with that. And the next point I want to get into, though, how do we get more free throw attempts? Because I think that has been uh, – I mean, obviously people have talked about the importance of that. We've seen it a lot in the end of games. It, we don't get free throw calls, and I think a lot of people get upset with refs. But at the same time, we, we don't really draw contact a lot. I mean, you know, some of that is the product of the pull-up twos. Like you said earlier, I mean, Malcolm and TJ Warren, there's only eight guys that are shooting the level that they are on mm-hmm. pull-up twos. So I'm not going to harp on that a lot because that is a shot that has value in the playoffs. You get run off the three-point line, you need to be able to make a pull-up two. Yeah, 100%. But the downside of that is if you're shooting from that range, you're not going to get fouled. If you're somebody like, I mean, TJ Warren is great off floaters, one-legged leaners. Those, those types of things aren't necessarily going to draw contact for you at the rim. And, you know, I think Victor would help that to a degree, but right now, yeah, so much when he gets in, contact. yeah, he's not seeking contact. So much of it is an off-balance layup rather than an on-target layup where he's playing through it. You'd get some of that from there. I mean, there was a little bit of a stretch in January where Miles was actually drawing, getting to the line at a pretty decent clip when he was going to the rim and actually seeking contact more than we had seen the last couple of years. But, I mean, some of that's just their personnel. I mean, I mean, even Jeremy Lamb is definitely a stop-and-pop you know, floater, teardrop type score. And that was something that you could have seen a, a year ago. I think when he was in Charlotte, he actually mm-hmm. took more more teardrops than he did layups. So you're not going to get a, not a lot of free throw attempts there. And, you know, it, it's a delicate balance because I looked up a number one day of the losses that the Bucks have had. I mean, let's use them as the gold standard. If the season ends today, they're, they're the best team in the East by, you know, miles. But yeah. You look at the teams that have successfully beat them, and I'm just for this time going to take the Pacers out of it because Giannis didn't play. In yeah, that it game. doesn't count. Well, yeah, I mean, it so, counts. Not saying it counts, but yeah. for for the sake of this argument, mm-hmm. um, all those opponents hit at least 15 threes on at least 35 attempts, except for the Lakers, who got to the line. Let's see, where did I write that number down? Oh, 38 free throw attempts that they had in that game. So really, you're going to have to do one or the other because they're so good at, at taking the rim away. You either have to be a team that can really hit from three at a high volume, and you're going to have to do that four times, 
or you're going to have to be a team that can actually be willing to attack their no-fly zone into the paint over and over and over again until you can get free throws. And obviously, that's somebody that is a LeBron-caliber player that was able to get them that degree of volume. And, and some of the three stuff gets tougher when you have this Sabonis-Turner pairing because, you know, if Miles is out there against Brooke Lopez, that's an advantage to you because Brooke Lopez is dropping deep, but Brooke Lopez is not going to be guarding Miles. When they're yeah. both out there, Brooke Lopez is going to be guarding Sabonis. So you're not going to be getting a lot more three-point attempts when Giannis can chase Miles out to the three-point line. And, you know, how 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 do you go about generating some of those shots? Because I, I, I don't want to harp overly on the mid-range thing because I see value there. But at the same time, I think that they do need to get they can't be the team that's dead last in three-point attempts and think that they're going to compete with the the Milwaukee Bucks in an actual series and think that they're going to get wins if they can't up that volume to a degree. And, you know, maybe some of that comes just naturally from the fact that if Victor's more like Victor and you're getting gravity out of him, then TJ Warren isn't drawing the top wing assignment. Mm-hmm. And maybe you're getting, which TJ Warren has been hot on fire from the left corner. If you're getting gravity, a gravitational pull when he or Brogdon are attacking the paint and you can open up some more of those corner threes for him, you can do things like that. Or just like what I said earlier about using Sabonis more as a vehicle for assists in the post, then you're getting more threes naturally and not just, you know, coming across half court and jacking them, which isn't something that a Nate McMillan team is ever going to do. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. One thing that I do want to dispel as well, though, I don't know if you feel the same, but the pace of the team. And I think that's something I'm not really worried about with the, the way that we attack the mid-range. And this team is, I mean, they are an incredibly gifted group of athletes. But at the same time, they're really built for half-court offense. They're not built yeah. for running out in transition. I mean, Miles running out in transition, is, that's just that's not what he does. He's a great rim protector and he can hit the three, but he's not, he's not the guy who's going to be running down the floor. And same thing with Sabonis. I mean, yeah, I mean, Oladipo and maybe TJ Warren and that's not really our team build. Right. I mean, I think that the, the bench unit plays with a little bit more pace because TJ mm-hmm. McConnell's kind of the classic, you know, push the pace and figure out what you're going to do later. And he does yeah. that pretty well. And, and playing Justin Holiday at the four lends itself to playing a little bit quicker. I tend to lean towards the shot clock management a little bit more than how many actual, you know, number of possessions you're getting. Cause once Victor came back, you can see a lot that sometimes they're playing late into the shot clock, but not for the right reasons. Not because they're running tons of offense and making a defense work, but more because, you know, he and Malcolm Brogdon just don't have well-developed chemistry yet, or, you know, they, they don't know each other's tendencies, and they're, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, and now we're at the last four seconds of the shot clock. You know, I'd like to see them clean some of that up, but I'm with you. I don't think the starting lineup with two centers in it is particularly well-suited to work about their overall pace of play and how many possessions they're getting per game. And, and some of that you'll get, what you just said too. Some of you, some of that they'll get from just forcing turnovers and getting Victor out in transition. I mean, that makes a big difference all on its own. But Yeah, 100%. And just like a small aside, because I don't know what your opinion is on Nate. I love Nate and I think he's been great for us. Uh, but I've seen a large smattering of uh, people on Twitter talking about Mike D'Antoni coming over from Houston. And I just uh, I can't speak enough on how his offensive system is not not what this team needs. I think that with Nate, I'm not sure that it necessarily matters. It'll be interesting to see. I think I think next year would be his lame duck year. Don't, yeah, I believe so. I, I believe it would be. But like, does anyone really think that Kevin Pritchard and and Nate aren't going to continue this relationship? Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I I would be just shocked if they decided to go in an opposite direction. So I think 
You know, I think Kevin Pritchard did a pretty good job last summer of handing, kind of knowing that I'm going to give Nate a little bit better weapons so that they can do more in the half court without necessarily requiring a ton more of uh, innovation, shall I say. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think Nate gets the most out of a players, and I think one of his strengths, and I think that players would probably agree with this, is that he does let people be themselves. I think that there's a little bit of an empowering quality there when you know that you're coming over and 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 you're going to be able to play in a system that lets you be who you are and, and lets some of those strengths shine. I think there's times where he could rein some of that in, and I think a lot of things I've brought up, I mean, the double big offense has bothered me for the last year and a half. I don't really know why it wasn't. Even, I mean, it really last year it really wasn't even a thing that existed. It was just a complete afterthought. Mm-hmm. Playing them together was a means to get Sabonis more more playing time, and they didn't run specific sets for the two of them. And, and now I, I think that's a little bit underdeveloped even if, you know, they ultimately decide that there's a ceiling to what you can do with the two of them in a playoff series. Unfortunately, we won't get some of those answers maybe this year. But yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I think that Nate uh, deserves more praise and more criticism in certain instances, but I don't expect that they would make a change there regardless. So yeah, yeah, I fully agree. And speaking on uh, bringing in weapons, uh I, I spoke with uh, Jeff Siegel yesterday. He's a cap guy for the NBA. He really knows what he's talking about. And we were talking a little bit about uh, the salary cap and, and free agency and how that can be impacted by this. And Justin, hopefully, he's our biggest free agent this summer. I mean, uh, Alizé and uh, Jakar are both uh, on minimum deals and will be free agents this summer as well. But Justin is probably going to command a pretty significant deal. Uh, and upon looking at like the cap and everything, his his deal probably wouldn't be massively impacted uh, by the way the cap's going to be restructured. But we have kind of a conundrum because bringing him back, I feel like, is should be very important. I mean, he's been incredible for this team. He's having the best three-point shooting in his career. He's a great defender and obviously an incredible locker room guy. But at the same time, uh, I feel like there is kind of a hole. I want to get your, your gauge on, on Justin. At oh, first, there's a but. hole. Yeah, no, I, I, I love Justin. I, I think he's great. I mean, I, I've used this comparison before, but I always say that Justin is what CJ Miles tried to be for the Pacers. <laughs> yeah. Only like, and, and that's not a knock on CJ. I mean, he's just, Justin's played the four spot that CJ Miles really didn't hold up trying to play, and it hasn't impacted Justin's three point percentage. And he does all these things in the shadows as a help defender that you don't notice until you really go back and watch film to see how something that he did defend, you know, guarding an off-ball action is what actually produced a turnover or whatever mm-hmm. it may be. Um, yeah, I really like Justin, but yeah, I, mean, I think there's there's definitely a hole at the four spot where they, yes. they don't really have an answer where Justin isn't the person that, and, and not that I'm saying that, you know, Carmelo Anthony is like the gold standard here. Like I'm not making that argument, but <laughs> even when they were in Portland, not. yeah, even when they were in Portland though, I'm just using his, him as an example of somebody who can step out and hit a three and be able to post up a switch. And there were times in Portland where it wasn't so much that Carmelo Anthony was hurting them in the post, but because Justin couldn't hold his spot against Carmelo Anthony in the post, now Sabonis is coming over to double, and well, now TJ McConnell's having to sink down against Hassan Whiteside. Carmelo misses a post up, and now you've given up an easy offensive rebound. Like, that type of stuff happens quite a bit, where they don't have that one person anymore who's able and mobile and quick enough to guard stretch shooters, and at the same time be able to 
to defend the post like Thad might have been able to do a year ago. And, and Thad had his limitations too on the offensive end, but just as an example, and, you know, Sabonis being able to guard, you know, a Przingis type. And lately over the last month or so, they finally started kind of making those adjustments where now Miles is guarding Giannis or Miles is guarding Przingis. And that's had decent results on the defensive end, but you still have limitations about, you know, what, what cross matches are doing to their transition defense, what cross matches are doing to how they're functioning in the half court. And I haven't looked at the overall net rating of that lately, but I do know that it was, it was fairly much in the, in the red against the top six teams in the Eastern Conference when they had both bigs on the floor. So I'm not saying that there's no future there, that I wouldn't want to see more, that I wasn't interested in seeing how it would handle in the playoffs because they were showing better things. Like what we said over the last month, you see them running role replace. You see them being more adventurous with how, whether it's trying zone defense or experimenting with matchups but I think that they do need whether they keep both both bigs in the starting lineup or whatever they do I think they need a a true stretch four that they can throw out there for certain matchups and that would be able to get out and defend at the three-point line a little bit better than what they have right now I don't know who that person is because I really haven't looked through free agency or what even options would be or looked at trade scenarios of even smaller scales so I'm not throwing any names out there oh yeah definitely not no aggregates um, but yeah, no, cause I, I, that, that was exactly where I was going. Uh, the four spot has been as well as Justin's played. We, we like, like you just mentioned, I think we're really seeing a lot of, uh, how important that was to the defense last year, because well, the defense has been, uh, on paper really good this year. I think we've seen a lot of cracks in it that weren't there last year, especially in the game against Boston. I mean, uh, Domas was getting killed having to try and get out to, to Hayward, uh, cause Hayward was playing the four most of the game. And even if he wasn't out at the four, it would have been Jason Tatum. So, uh, yeah, that cross match is impossible. E- even Miles, who has a little bit quicker feet to, right. to get out and recover on the perimeter, but then give up the drive to somebody like one of the wings that Boston has. No, yeah, I completely agree with that assessment. I mean, Miles has brighter spots, as you say, where like I can remember times this year where he's gotten stops on switches versus, you know, Bogdanovich or the LeBron or, stop. Or Luca. Yeah, or the LeBron stop. But there's also times that you can point out and see that, you know, he's even trying to rush out there and they're driving yeah. those closeouts or or even sometimes quicker bigs drive on him when he's out there. But yeah. Having that type of an answer, I mean, even even in the one, I mean, they won this game, but I remember in the early going up in Minnesota, he was trying, they were having Sabonis guard Robert Covington on one end and then Miles getting kind of pushed around by Carl Anthony Towns, which that's another one where they could have switched it or switched the matchups, but then Sabonis is just trying to get out to Robert Covington. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one other thing that I want to harp on too, um, the first quarter offense is kind of... Uh, frightening to me um the the first quarter defense is solid it's top 10 in the league but the first quarter offense is a 104.4 uh offensive rating which is uh believe it or not horrendous uh that's no, yeah, worst in the league and it's not even just like something that like i i looked it up because i was thinking about it today when i was getting ready for this it was like well you know the first quarter offense is never very good so let's look at the numbers and it supports it uh, and with obviously the the toronto game is a a, a kind of massive implosion of that um but at the same time it's not i don't i don't want to say this like a an effort issue but i'm not really sure what the problem is with getting going in the first quarter yeah i mean and that game in particular toronto went to a zone from right like right out of the bat and i think that really messed up 
I mean, they haven't been good at a zone against zone all year, and it, yeah. you know it, it encourages them to shoot threes at a higher level, and they can't be running pick and roll with. I mean, you can be running, you can run and screen a zone, but you're not running it in the same way, and it makes makes you think. And and that was evident in that game. So they were taking kind of quick shots, and then Toronto was just getting run out after run out after run out. But um, I'm kind of surprised more teams don't zone them from the get go like that. But um, no. beside the point. I think sometimes I think they they open up about every game with a flex set to get Sabonis a touch in the post because I think they want to establish him early, and and so some of it might come. They they play a little bit slower in that early going. At it. it seems like the Pacers kind of in general. I don't know what the numbers were a year ago, but it kind of seems like they have a way with um, starting slow. Yeah, but I think some of it stems from the fit with with Miles and Sabonis. Tums, sometimes in negotiating that type of space. And then, I mean, if you look at the numbers, the on-offs, just the entire offensive system is kind of propped up by Sabonis. They rely on him quite a bit for what their system actually is going to be. So when they, when he goes out of the game, you know, what exactly are you running? And that, I, I don't know this to be absolute fact, so don't quote me (laughs) on it, but my guess is that that is the quarter he plays the least amount of minutes in of the three because he plays quite a bit in the second quarter with the bench and then sometimes will come back in and even, even close out that half, not all the time. And then in the third quarter, the starters play most of the third. And then he's usually the big on the floor. Like if, if somebody's going to get pulled at the end of the game, most of the time it isn't Sabonis. There's a few times mm-hmm. where that has happened, but not many. So my guess is that a lot of that might stem from that dynamic. Like, I don't know, because I haven't really dug deep into that to see what the numbers look like. But the offense overall, when Sabonis isn't on the floor, isn't good. So, yeah, yeah. And uh, also digging into the starters a little bit. Uh, what do you think has been up with Malcolm and his rim finishing? Because I think it, you know, part of me really thought it was due to his hand injury that he had earlier in the year. But at the same time, I mean, his, his finishing at the rim has been, uh, I don't want to say this bad the entire year, but it's, uh, I mean, he's in the bottom 16% for guards, which is obviously bad considering he was above average his first three years in the league. I mean, he shot 61% at the rim last year on high attempts and he's shooting 50% at the rim this year, which is, uh, Obviously not great, and I think it was something that really led to a downfall in his efficiency. And it was really hurting his drives, because I remember early in the year, um, he was really attacking with some real confidence at the rim, but we started seeing more of his, uh, like he would drive to the rim, but make some passes out that he wasn't comfortable with, or fumble the ball a little bit, and he just didn't seem comfortable going to the rim at all. Right. I actually wrote a piece some, I mean, not completely on the rim finishing, but I wrote a mm-hmm. thing about looking at his drives over the last month or so and how much those had tapered off, which then had a, had a bit of a chain effect on how often he was getting to the line. And that also just even his free throw percentage had bizarrely dropped off. Yeah, that was weird. I mean, it, it's kind of hard to pull out like how much of this was lingering effects from the hamstring injury and how much of it is lingering effects from potentially his back or potentially mm-hmm. this, like, was this injury actually brand new? Or or was he dealing, you know, potentially with some soreness before it ever happened? Like, I can't speculate as to that, but there's definitely been some weirdness overall going on. I think where you have kind of seen what happens when he isn't in benefiting somewhat from being a spot-up option with, you know, the degree of Giannis's gravitational pull there, I think that impacts even his three-point percentage this year. He's not getting as many easy catch-and-shoot threes with six-plus feet of space, and when that hasn't happened, he's taking tougher ones, and his three-point percentage has plummeted. So maybe some of the times when he's getting to the rim, he's also seeing 
a little bit more defense there after how he started off at the beginning of the year where he's he's maybe another a defender rotates over to him and that impacts his finish. But I tend to think that he kind of either wore out as the year progressed or that some of those injuries had a buildup, you know, downstream effect on on how he was playing. Because even defensively, I pointed yeah, this out. Slipped yeah, quite a bit. I mean, I, it was pretty evident going into even this season that he's he's not a person with great defensive positioning at the point of attack. That isn't who he is. You you ideally don't really want him having to defend point guards, and I think that's a lot of the reason why they went to zone defense is because he wasn't keeping people in front. But even since Victor's come back, and even when he's playing off ball, you'll notice that if he has to go help at the nail, he will be such like a step slow and how, how labored it would be for him to get over and make that stunt and be able to get back to his guy at just the slot. Like that's not even a big help distance that he was having to cover, but it it always looked very brittle and labored there for about, I would say like a month or so. So it it just makes me wonder if something more was, was going on there that maybe we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I would fully agree with that. Moving on to another guard. I I wrote a piece about it a a couple, like probably two weeks ago. Um, But somebody who I think is really going to have to step up next year uh, is Aaron Holiday, especially with Jeremy likely being out. I, I mean, I'm, I don't know for sure. Injuries are weird, but, uh, w- with the significance of injury that he's, he suffered, it's likely that Jeremy's going to miss quite a good deal next year. So having Aaron step up is going to be huge because he's been pretty plagued with inconsistency this year. I mean, he's had some really incredible stretches, but then his shot just disappears for games at a time. Uh, and his rim finishing has been even worse than Malcolm's this year. Uh, and that's never something that he's been awesome at, obviously. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I, like, where do you think the improvement comes from the, from the bench for next year? Because I think our bench has obviously been such a huge part of what we do. And we never even got to see Jeremy come into a six-man role, really. He played like four or five games before he got injured after slotting back there. Right. I mean, it's kind of going to be interesting what they do with that in general. Because you, you would think that they're going to sign that they would look to sign somebody maybe with one of their exceptions to to fill that Jeremy role. Because, I mean, I, I would suspect that he's going to miss a big chunk of the year as well, like you said. So I would kind of think that they might look to address that with a free agent of some sort. But without that type of knowledge, uh, man, that's kind of tough to say. Like, you want to know where, I, where they could take another level. I mean, that group in general with Aaron, TJ... Doug, Justin, assuming Justin's back, and Sabonis has been one of their best lineups all year. They get mm-hmm. pretty good production out of that, but I do agree. I think over the last like 10 or 15 games, Aaron's shooting like, I want to say upper like 25 or upper 20s from three. So his shot, while he shot over well for this, well overall for the season, does has kind of wavered up and down. He kind of fights against himself somewhat when he's, I mean, his body type is suited to be a point guard, but. There's yeah, times where, right, where in December he had the really good stretch where it looked like, oh, you know, he's playing with his head up more. He's seeing the floor more in some of their sets and he's seeing options for passes. And then I think they played, I want to say they played like the Hawks in January. I don't, the game that they lost to get against Atlanta, whatever month that was in. Mm-hmm. At the end of that game, he just struggled with his decision making so much where he just kind of battles himself a bit where it, it, he kind of flounders with whether he should be establishing himself or, or setting the table for others. And, and you'd want to hope, I mean, he's only a second year player. 
even though he is older for being a second-year player because he stayed in college a little bit longer. But you kind of hope that that would continue to develop. But I kind of want to know what the Pacers' overall plan with his, him is because obviously there's not a path towards upward mobility with this team. You know, he's never going to be playing in front of Malcolm Brogdon yeah, or Victor Oladipo. Not. His role is going to be as a fill-in. So if that's the case, do they see him as a potential trade chip? I mean, his name's been connected yeah, to how many trades year. over the last year and a half with several different teams that whether, you know, I've heard reported, you know, from Orlando, whether it's like you said, Minnesota, the Knicks. So how, how do they see, do they see him as a part of what they want to continue doing or do they see him maybe as a means to them addressing some of the other holes on their roster? Yeah. Yeah. No, it'll be really interesting to see what they do. I personally, like, I don't know. I really think that he's shown some flashes. It would be uh, exciting if he was able to make it happen here. Uh, and we were able to just bring in a stretch for it, uh, with the mid-level exception, but at the same time, stretch fours don't normally come in at the mid-level exception. Uh, so I, I don't know, it'll, just a lot of questions to, to be answered. Caitlin, thank you so much for coming on today. You have a good rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Pacers fans, first of all, thank you for listening. If you haven't already, please go rate, review, and subscribe to Indie Cornrows on Apple Podcasts. Check out our articles on IndieCornrows.com. And leave us any questions, comments, or feedback you have. Have a great rest of your day. Keep social distancing and go Pacers.